one night only, together and in person. From <laughs> Melissa's living room in Northern California. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, we are podding from the same room. It's amazing. This is the first proper female yeah. fuckabout we've had <laughs> in a very long time. <laughs> so our theme today is spies, espionage, sleuths, spy adjacent kind of stuff. We, of course, grew up at the tail end of the Cold War, and a lot of the tropes that we saw in popular culture had to do with how superior we were to Russia and the Soviets and how miserable and gray and drab it was there, and <laughs> everyone had to stand in bread lines and give their life savings for a pair of Jordache jeans. Oh my God, I'm trying to break in these jeans, and I, but I really want to wear them for the show that I'm for Thursday night. They are crushing my internal organs. Organ. So. This is why I think everyone just switched to soft pants during COVID and no one wants <laughs> to go back. These pants, they fit when I bought them. Yep. And then a couple of weeks later, they didn't fit. And then they fit again. And then they didn't fit. And I was like, fuck you. I hate it. I don't know what to wear when I leave the house anymore. I've heard the horrors that the low-rise jeans are back. They were so low. So low. They were so low. All the hip bones. Just a whole string of terrible, like, fashion choices and that. They're all coming back. Oh, gross. Okay, Melissa, what Bycraft series was too short? The show called The Company You Keep. It premiered on ABC in February of this year and it ran for 10 episodes. Actually streamed it on Hulu. Created by Julia Cohen. It was based on a South Korean TV series called My Fellow Citizens. Produced by Michael Gray, Deanna Harris, and Nick Pavanetti. Starring Milo Ventimiglia, Catherine Haina Kim, Sarah Wayne Callies, Polly Draper, William Fitchner, Tim Chu, James Saito, Frida Foshen, and Felicia Terrell. Wow, that is a good cast. Uh, lots of good character actors, people that I hadn't seen in ages. Yeah. Like Polly Draper forever. But faces that I always am happy to see when they pop up. The show starts off, Charlie and Emma meet at a fancy bar and they immediately start flirting because they are both impossibly beautiful and they end up having a weekend of passion. They don't share any details about their lives. I think one of them says, I'm a yoga instructor and the other one says, I'm a rocket scientist or something like that. It's just all flirty. It's fun. You just, you're not really sure what you're getting into. What that means is that Emma doesn't know that Charlie's a con man from a notorious Italian crime family and charlie doesn't know that emma is an undercover cia agent cia agent from a well-respected political family so in short order you find out that charlie his family the nicoletti family is in debt to an irish mobster they have a bar that is a front for all the cons they run and charlie has been trying to leave the family business and go straight but they start dating and they and you're like, this is impossible. This isn't going to work. But pretty early on, 
everything comes to light. I really like that because I think with a lot of network shows, they can drag the, these secrets out for, for seasons. But because Emma works for the CIA, she has to be forthcoming about everything in her life. So the CIA actually grabs Charlie and they interrogate him and ask him if he knew that Emma was a CIA agent, which, of course, that's the worst news for him. And he had no idea. So he knows this, but he can't tell her why this is a problem for him. She's relieved that she doesn't have to lie to him anymore, but he's torn because he can't really share his life with her. So he bre they break up and she doesn't understand why. Mm. They go their separate ways. They keep almost crossing paths again. Charlie actually finally tells her the truth because he finds out the Irish mobsters are going to blackmail her family because she comes from like this political dynasty. So they're not together anymore, but they want to be. And there's all this romantic tension. There's a scene where she's putting a wire on him. He doesn't have a shirt on. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought it was a really light and fun and sexy and smartly written show. The chemistry between the two of them is very believable. There are a bunch of cons that Charlie's family runs in between all the espionage stuff. They're really fun to watch because they're very well-crafted schemes. The scenes reminded me of Charlie's Angels, the mm -hmm. original, or a show like Remington Steel, where the camera would really give you all the inside info so you as the audience knew as much as the grifters. So you were inside what was happening. Like they would zoom in on a purse and then you would see the inside of the purse and it would have a camera in it or or an audio device they were recording everyone it was a little bit of tv nostalgia but it also was like a fun caper there's a lot of lightness in the show but it also it's well written to have a balance with the heavier stuff season one ends with emma trying to get charlie to work with the cia using his crime expertise to clean up the corruption within the department but he says no and he explains we could never be together we're too different, but also my family is always going to be a target and I have to protect them. The final scene is in a <laughs> hotel bar. That's how they meet. Mm -hmm. They're back where they started, though, flirting with each other. But you realize that he's passing her in talent. Yeah. They're flirting under the guise of, oh, we're working yeah. together now. So things are not truly over for them. I was disappointed that it was canceled so quickly because I don't think the network gave it a chance. It was canceled for low rating. And I think after another season or two, they would have found their audience because it was critically very well received. I also think I needed to give people a minute after if it's up because <laughs> That's fair. people would have been in a few more months. What is, please say his name for me. Milo Ventimiglia. What is Milo Ventimiglia <laughs> doing now? We missed him based on our team. Yeah. I wonder if there's still any chance another streamer might pick it up or something. I tried to find out, and it seemed pretty much like we're done. I think they built that show around him yeah. because he had such a pull from This Is Us. And Catherine Hannah Kim, who plays Emma in the show, she's gorgeous. And the two of them, it's just fun to watch. Yeah. Fun to watch beautiful people <laughs> who, have, who have good chemistry. Mm-hmm. Smoke up the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. They've been doing that for <laughs> decades now. I used to tell people I was a spy. <laughs> I would go down to the railroad tracks and there was this 
a thing. I don't know what it was. I want to say a trestle. I don't know what that is. There was like an underground area and I'd go down there and pretend that I was working with Scarecrow and Mrs. King on something. <laughs> My earliest spy show was Inspector Gadget. So good, right? <laughs> I love that. I remember coming home from school and watching that and Thundercats. There was a third show, but those were two of them because they were they were all right back to back. All his gadgets and and the things he could do and Penny, right? That was his niece. And I wanted to be Penny. And the other one was a show when we were older, but it had one season. Do you remember this? It was called The New Adventures of Beans Baxter. No. The Baxter thing, I think, is Jonathan Lord. He just was in a, a ton of shows around the time when I had such a crush on him. But it just was a one season thing. I think it was a Canadian show. All right. Scarecrow and Mrs. King, because my mom yep. loved that show. So much so that she wrote a fan letter and they sent her a postcard back. Really? Whitener and Kate Jackson. And she put it on top of our telephone. So whenever I'd go to the phone, there were Scarecrow and Mrs. King. Rocky and Bullwinkle, of course. Of course. Boris and Natasha. When I worked at Seabrook, when I worked night audit, and it was one or two in the morning and I had finished my work and I was just on the three channel television set it would play she spies natasha henstridge oh she spies terrible name i remember who else was in it wow i remember i watched that show that was wiped from my memory for some reason Mine that I think went too long, and I think a lot of fans agree with me, if I may be so bold, was Killing Eve, a BBC America show. It ran for four seasons based on the Villanelle novels by Luke Jennings, and it was produced by Sally Gentle, Lee Morris, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Emerald Fennell, Gina. Uh, McNaughty, Sandra O, oh, Jody Comer, Damon Thomas, Puna Kilcarney, Colin Ratton, Eleanor Day, for Sid Gentle Films, BBC America, and Endeavor, starring among many others Sandra O, oh, Jody Comer, Fiona Shaw, Kim Bodnia, a lot of great character actors make some appearances in there. And for four seasons, April 2018 to April 2022. The fourth season did get interrupted because of COVID. Basically, the story is Villanelle is a contract killer played by Jodie Comer. She works for a shady organization we don't know much about for much of the series. Eve Palastri, played by Sandra Oh, who can do no wrong in my eyes, gets pulled in by an elite MI6 section led by Fiona Shaw to help them track down Villanelle and who she's working for, more importantly, because she's able to go in and assassinate very high-level officials and diplomats and things of that nature, people with a lot of power, Villanelle. She happens to have a very good accent game, speaks a lot of languages, and she loves the finer things. So we find out that she grew up in an orphanage 
and is a sociopath and hasn't had any real strong relationships or connections in her life, except her handler, Constantin, who's played by Kim Bodnia, who also starred... Did you watch The Bridge? Starring The Bridge. So the first season is pretty much focused on watching Villanelle, how skilled she is, and her beautiful, couture, darkly comedic, graphic killing of many people, dance and prance through the crime scene. She loves her job. She loves killing people. And that Eve is starting to figure things out and gain on her. Villanelle is fascinated that someone like Eve has taken an interest in her and that she is smart and she's uh, able to figure things out about her when when she feels like no one really cares about her. That's a theme in her life. Of course, because she's a sociopath, she wouldn't really know if, if anybody did. The first season ends with them having a very intense meeting. So the next season is... Are they going to get together? Is Eve still going to pursue her as a agent of the law? Or is she pursuing her because she wants to be with her? And season two, Villanelle is injured. So she has to get medical attention. Eve is hot on her heels, but also worried about her. She's happy to find out that a new assassin has been brought on into the 12 because she wants to see Villanelle get out of that life and maybe even bring her in to MI6. But also, she's internally competing to bring this case to a resolution. A lot of the season, they're not together. They're kept apart. Villanelle will do something to get Eve's attention and let her know that she's she knows where she is at all times, send her a dress, or she'll do a killing in a very Villanelle kind of way as her calling card. He tries to bait Villanelle to actually come assassinate her. She puts a hit out on herself to see if Villanelle will come and save her or kill her or whatever will happen. Villanelle comes to save her. They have like a little romantic interlude in Paris. Eve is understandably still conflicted about her feelings. And to be honest, throughout most of the series, I was conflicted too. I was like, just put her in fucking handcuffs. She's murdered so many people. She's a sociopath. But she, I mean, she got to wear the best clothes. I mean. Oh, yeah. They end up back together again in Rome. It's one of those things where they're like, what are you doing here? I came to save you. What are you doing here? No, I came to save you. Blah, blah. They escape from the villa and that the tech company guy who has the software that's going to wipe out all the computers in the world kind of thing. Villanelle says, I'll, I can give this up. You come with me. We'll run away together. You don't want to be with your husband. And she says, no, I can't do that. So <laughs> Villanelle shoots her in the gut the end of season two is her saying you shot me it was shocking even for a show that has a lot of shocking things happen season three and i think the best season their relationship is set up you get this cat and mouse game that they're playing 
there's a flirtiness. It's undeniable that they're drawn to each other, but they both know that it's bad. But they are still in their own worlds. I think it works best when they're not in the same space together. Because then when they are, it has that electricity. In season three, Carolyn, Fiona Shaw, her son dies. It's ruled a suicide. But Eve and Carolyn don't believe that it was a suicide. So they spend most of season three trying to figure out who killed Kenny. Not in a South Park way. <laughs> no. Villain. Well, living a decadent lifestyle, she's going to get married. And she's been asked by the Twelve, who are this shady organization that she's been working for, to train some killers. I don't know. Of course, since she has no people skills, she's a terrible trainer. Carolyn figures out who killed Kenny. She goes to confront him. Eve and Villanelle are brought together by Constantine. They all meet up and follow Carolyn. It's like that scene in Boogie Nights where Alfred Molina is singing to Sister Christian. It's like that energy. The very end is Eve and Villanelle are on a bridge. They talk about the power that they have over each other. They admit that it's mutual and bittersweet and sad. Villanelle says, it's really easy. We just walk away from each other and we don't look back. So they walk away from each other. Poetic ending. It would have left the door open if they wanted to maybe later crime caper or some something later. It's hard to know when that thing will happen to tip the scales and if at the end of season three you had said and that's it i would have been oh no i want to see what happens next but sometimes that feeling is really a happy feeling to be left with the fourth season i think part of the problem was it skewed very zany it starts with villanelle flagellating herself basically to prove that she can be good so she's going to get baptized she believes it's going to somehow change her. And after she's baptized and she doesn't really feel any different, she decides this is bullshit and I'm just going to go back to being worse than I was before. And also wacky is that she plays Jesus. She, Jodie Comer, or Villanelle, it's Villanelle playing Jesus, talking to Villanelle, talking to her about how wonderful and special she is and nobody else understands her and all that kind of stuff. There's another assassin who's in love with Villanelle. She's going to kill Eve because she's jealous. And Eve says, no, you don't get it. I need to find Villanelle. It's not what you think. We know where the 12 is. We're going to neutralize them. Long story short, Villanelle helps Carolyn and Eve neutralize the rest of the secret cabal. She gets shot. Villanelle falls in the water and Eve goes after her. And we, the audience, see that Carolyn's the one who authorized the shot. Villanelle kind of sinks to the bottom of the Thames and Eve comes up to the surface and screams. Not that I think a happily ever after would have done. And it's not that. It's not a resolution, because I guess it is, but it's that season one was so good, and season two was better than season one, and season three was better than season <laughs> one and two, 
And that happened so rarely. That thing that made it so special and crackly fell off so much in the fourth season. I love, love, love both of these actors so much. They'll never, no matter what they do in their future careers, they'll, they'll never have roles like this. It was something just magical. I never finished. Do you recommend watch it just so I have that sort of closure or? I now edit the fourth season out. I just end it with season three, the beautiful looking back over their shoulders at each other on the bridge and maybe imagining that they're catching their perfume as they leave the room and the other one comes in kind of thing. Out of sheer curiosity, it's only eight episodes. I don't know. I'd skip it. Yeah. If any, if, if it weren't you and I, and it was just some random on the street. Should I watch? I'd say skip it. I don't remember when I started to realize, oh, spies literally have sex for, with people for <laughs> information. But I was looking at an article from Foreign Policy, which has five famous cases of the honey trap. One, this guy's still under house arrest in Israel. His name's Mordecai Van Nunu, an Israeli technician who worked in a nuclear facility in Israel, but he went to the press to say that Israel wasn't just using energy, they were developing weapons. At the time, even though now we know they have weapons, Israel's policy was they weren't developing weapons. So... He was going to go to Rome with a young woman that he met and have a romantic weekend and then come back and he'd meet with this reporter. Unbeknownst to him, the woman was the Mossad agent and they captured him and brought him back mm -hmm. to Israel. And he served uh, 16 years, 14 of them in solitary confinement. Every year since he's been released, he has been, they've reaffirmed his inability to travel out of Israel or talk to the press. Also, every year since then, he has been nominated for the Nobel Peace. So that was a honey trap operation. One of the other ones they talk about is Matahari. Right. I didn't know this. This is from Foreign Policy. She defended herself, but they still executed her. She didn't wear a blindfold at her execution and pretty much come to believe now that she was telling the truth and they maybe made a example of her to dissuade other women from becoming paid. Jeremy Wolfenden was London Daily, London Daily Telegraph correspondent in Moscow in the 60s. He spoke Russian. He was living in Moscow. He was vulnerable to being exploited because he was gay. The KGB ordered the Ministry of Foreign Trade Barber to seduce him. And then they blackmailed him and they threatened to pass the photos onto the paper unless he spied on the community of other Westerners in Moscow at the time. He started drinking and he wanted to get out of it. He tried to transfer out of Moscow and went to Washington, but then 
the British embassy wanted him to buy that. Oh, like double agent. So he, and he died about them. Whoa. Pretty dark. The last one is, uh, because so many German men were killed during World War II, so many German women needed to get jobs. A lot of the higher ups, powerful positions in Germany were filled by women, single women, widowed women. East German spy master Marcus Wool set up a special department of the Stasi to staff with handsome eligible officers. He called them Romeo spies. Their assignment was to infiltrate West Germany, seek out powerful unmarried women, Roman, squeeze from them all their secrets. What do you think about the, like, having sex for information angle? Oh, you mean sexpionage? I just learned that term today. <laughs> Fascinating. Like the entire James Bond franchise. Yeah. He is the honey trap. Yeah. I, I remember on Alias, Sydney Bristow's mother is, they refer to her as the honey trap. Mm. That's her whole thing is she's supposed to be really sexy and that's the power she wields. Mm -hmm. Even as detectives, not necessarily spies. But right. Like Charlie's Angels. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was their whole thing was to, to be, they were intelligent, but they were also very physically attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see Fubar, though? <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was just on Netflix, and he and his daughter are both CIA agents. Oh. <laughs> but he doesn't know that his daughter is, and his daughter doesn't know that he is <laughs> until they end up on the same team in the field. And anyway, she is one of the honey trap agents. <laughs> and so it adds that other layer of when he has to go pick her up in the morning and he knows the information she was getting the night before. Oh, yikes. <laughs> oh, Melissa. Yes. Yeah. What was the show that ended perfectly? I feel like the show ended so perfectly that I had to make James watch it with me. So I've seen this twice all the way through. Honestly, the second time I liked it better. It's The Americans, which originally ran on FX, but you can stream it now on Hulu. It went for six seasons from 2013 to 2018. It was created by former CIA officer Joe Weisberg and co-produced by Joe Weisberg, Joel Field, and Graham Yost. Golden Graham. Starring Carrie Russell, Matthew Reese, Noah Emmerich, Polly Taylor, Costa Ronan, Maximiliano Hernandez, Margot Martindale, Lev Gorn, Allison Wright, Brandon J. Dearden, Dylan Baker, among so many other wonderful character actors. It is an espionage thriller about undercover KGB spies in America, but it's also about a marriage. The Americans follows KGB agents Philip and Elizabeth Jennings, played by Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell, who are posing as Americans and living in Washington, D.C. during the Cold War, Reagan era. Philip and Elizabeth are deep cover, long game operatives. In the 1960s, when they're barely adults, they have assimilated to the point where they have two children together, Paige and Henry, who are teenagers. They own their own travel agency. And all the while, they're running these really intense and dangerous espionage missions, complete with amazing spycraft. Because they live right outside of Washington, D.C., that's the sort of center of counterintelligence agencies in the country. So when a new neighbor moves in, he just happens to be an FBI agent, which, of course, is a threat to the very carefully crafted life. 
these people have built as regular Americans for themselves. So partially to keep an eye on him and to protect themselves, they become friends with this FBI agent, Stan Beeman, played by Noah Emmerich. In the process, they become genuinely close with him and his family. That is just a really precarious situation to watch all the way through the series. Outside the Jennings storyline, there's a, a side plot about the FBI and the Soviet embassy workers who are working for the KGB. So many of the people that and his fellow FBI agents are chasing after are either connected directly to the Jennings, but he's always just a little bit behind them. One of the most interesting parts about the show is the relationship that this married couple have. They were paired up by the KGB. It's basically an arranged marriage. Not only do they do the spy stuff together, they work together at the travel agency, and of course they live together and they're raising these children. A lot of the plot centers around their family life and how they don't always agree about domestic things, how to parent the kids who have no idea that their mom and dad are actually spies, how to live in a world there's cosplaying in as Americans. They care about each other, but you don't always know for sure if they even like each other. They do go through some things that bring them closer. It's forbidden to talk about their past. They're not allowed to speak or speak about the Soviet Union or their families that they left behind. Their undercover work requires absolute loyalty to the Soviet Union and Elizabeth never really wavers. Her devotion and her allegiance to her home country is fierce, and she actively hates the United States. Philip, on the other hand, has become comfortable in his life. He likes being an American. He likes the freedoms that it allows him and the the privilege that it allows him because they both grew up desperately poor. He and Elizabeth spar a lot about that. Eventually, he comes to question his role in this world. Season five, especially, they run a really complicated and layered mission involving a lot of different people on the relationships they've built over many seasons. That's really where he starts to question things and his sense of duty and loyalty faltering. And he has a kind of moral crisis. He wants out. He wants to just have a regular life. She continues. Elizabeth continues on. And that puts a big strain on their marriage. Throughout the show, they both take on many different really elaborate personas to get the intelligence that they need. They work separately and together sometimes to bring in informants, often under the false pretense of romantic relationships, the whole honey trap. Philip, at one point, pursues a woman who he wants to turn into an informant at the FBI. Then he moves in with her and then he marries her. That's the, the cover. It's, it's, it's bananas. And Elizabeth knows all this and she's helping him because that's part of their jobs. She knows he's sleeping with someone else. He knows she's, he's involved with a woman who maybe wants to have a child with him. She also has a few of these relationships of her own. Every once in a while, they have these moments where there's some jealousy. It's, it's really interesting to see because they're just like, this is just the work. As their kids get older, it's harder for them to hide what they do and explain the constant travel and the secretive phone calls and the business trips in the middle of the night. Their daughter Paige is especially suspicious and that creates a lot of problems for them and puts them all in danger. I hate Paige. <laughs> but she's really crucial, especially near the end. She is eventually recruited by the KGB. Because they learn, Philip and Elizabeth learn, that was always the plan for these spies to start families and bring forth the next generation of spies who will infiltrate government agencies, the FBI or the CIA, totally legitimately have these sleeper agents. So that's a big breaking point for Philip and Elizabeth. They don't agree about bringing Paige in. After five seasons of hiding in plain sight and so many close calls, they are finally confronted by Stan Beeman, who figures it out, puts it all together. And they come clean. It is 
one of the most brutal scenes of just pure betrayal. He was their friend. He was like their family. He picked up their kids from school when they needed to. Like Philip played racquetball with him and it's so sad. He's so hurt. He wants to do the right thing, but he loves them and he loves the kids, especially Henry, the younger son, because Paige now is involved with Philip and Elizabeth. She's doing the work. So they're all going to try to escape and they have to leave Henry behind. They know they can't bring him with them. He doesn't know anything about this. And he's away at boarding school. They can't say goodbye to him in person. They can't go to him because they could be found out. They go to McDonald's. There's these KGB agents, these Russian spies, sitting there eating McDonald's, trying to figure out what their fate is. And they go to this payphone and calls Henry. They say goodbye and they can't really tell him anything still. Mm -hmm. It was riveting and really stressful right up to the very end. Like the whole show had just been. There were some things that were a little ambiguous, but they weren't real loose ends because you can surmise what happens. Paige and Philip and Elizabeth are on a train and they're trying to escape. I think the plan is they're going to go to Canada first and then from there go elsewhere. They're on a train and they are sitting there all separated in one car and they have disguises on and they're being everyone or at least within the FBI knows who this is. Mm -hmm. Stan is trying to like he gave him kind of a head start to get away Yeah, by letting him go. But they know that they could be caught at any moment and they stop. There's a stop at the train station. I think they're okay. And train pulls away and Paige is standing on the tra- on the platform. She stays. Whoa. There's no, and their faces, you just see them going, oh my God. But it's not just like horror and fear and sadness. It's also a little bit of like, oh, she got away. Yeah. But also it was one of those moments in, in a show where the music is really matched perfectly. It's you two and they're playing with or without you. Uh-huh. And it like crescendos of that big moment the chorus and she just right and i I just get goosebumps every time i think of it which was also it's a little on the nose but it's also perfect for that era too yeah i was gonna say it's a great 80s exactly yeah and you don't exactly know what happens after that but you do know that stan goes to henry's school he probably goes and tells him some Mm -hmm. version of the truth you know that Paige stays behind to continue the work that they were doing but maybe also has figured out how to like stay in contact with her brother. The final scenes are Elizabeth and Philip. They have someone from the embassy picks them up and they are driving into St. Petersburg mm-hmm. and they ask to pull over and stop and they stand at a bridge and look over the water and they just go, this is, this is our new life. So you don't really know, are they, no, are they in trouble over there? Yeah. Are they free? You don't really know, but you just decide, you have to decide for yourself in your head, like where are they all in? In my head, I've decided that Philip and Elizabeth don't stay together mm. or they might run into each other. But the thing that kind of glued them together was their kids mm. and the sense of duty they have to, to look out for the family. Mm. I just felt it was a really fitting, bleak ending mm. that was perfect for the tone of the show. The honey trap is one thing. Having children than your co-worker makes basically that's that really made things it really cemented them into that world. The lives they destroyed by the lies they had to yeah. tell. Not one that you can bend. Sure. You really have to take an episode at a time and you have to walk it off. This isn't like really spying, spying, but it's a kind of spying when we watch reality TV. I think probably everybody now watches some reality TV. I like personally the competitive reality tv like a cooking competition or something. project runway yeah 
Top Chef. I can't think of any of There was one about where people made things, like it was called Make It. Yeah. Crafting yeah. things. Like those I find interesting because yeah. there's, there's like a there's purpose. Of course, I watched Real World when I was young because I watched anything that was on MTV. <laughs> I do believe the premise was interesting and it, at least then, was a good experiment of putting people of different backgrounds, belief systems, Mm-hmm. into a space and seeing how they reacted to each other and what they learned from each other. They put like a fundamental Christian with mm-hmm. an out gay person right. or they put a puck in the house with Pedro who was HIV positive or at least through the first few seasons, I thought that was interesting. Then it got too slick and too yeah. produced and it wasn't. And then you more. didn't really trust if you were, if what you were saying was truly unscripted or not. Right, right. That, yeah, that first season especially was fascinating. And the show that I really, when it really occurred to me, the landscape of television had changed was Survivor. I was working as a waitress and I remember trading shifts with people so they could go and watch Whoa. the episodes. They didn't miss anything, especially when there was the big finale. Wow. And people were so like that. I feel is when it really had a grip on the country, if not beyond that. It, like, just took over everyone and everything. I like The Prophet. It's Marcus Lemonis. It was on CNBC. He's a billionaire, and he owns some camping stores. And so he, either it's a company he wants to be a partner in, or he's going to help them get back on their feet, and he'll take a cut of The Prophet. I learned a lot about business in general, startups, common pitfalls of businesses, interpersonal relationships, especially in family businesses. I think it's a really good show. But because it's people's businesses, they are, it's, of course, a very vulnerable position to be in. I came across this paper about the ethics of reality TV. It's just, it's from... The University of Texas at Austin Center for Media Engagement. One of the questions that they asked was, are creators of reality TV shows morally responsible for the psychological effects of their on-screen participants? That made me think about it because some people who got into business with Marcus Lamonis later said that this, that, and the other thing happened behind the scenes with the producers. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all up front. So that's something very complicated because it has to do with people's legal business and their income and their livelihood. That makes me think of America's Next Top Model. Yeah. And some of the questionable things they did. But later you hear stories, we heard stories about how people were saying they were made to do things that they weren't comfortable with in some of these shoots or they were treated really disrespectfully. But because of the contract they signed, they couldn't say anything. They probably had NDAs. Even though the writers, the last two writers have incorporated reality TV into their demand, I don't think the actors did. Right. So they can get a whole bunch of attractive 20-somethings who want to be on television for nothing, make the humongous amount of money mm-hmm. on Love Blind or whatever kind of a show. They don't have the same benefit, but they also don't have any protection. Yeah.
Kazimierski spotkało się z szerokim odgłosem w francuskiej prasie. Ze szczególnym zainteresowaniem komentowano tutaj przyjętą przez... What is your show that you would like to rewrite the ending for? Usually when, or any of the rewrites that we've done so far, it's been either we were not satisfied with how it ended or it maybe went too long and we would have ended it sooner. This one's a little bit different because it was the behind the scenes stuff that ruined a really good show. I'm taking this completely into the realm of fantasy Because a lot of the things that happened that affected the story were because of all the ham-fisted crap going on behind the scenes. The show Sleepy Hollow, and it debuted in 2013 on Fox. It was created by Alex Kurtzman and Roberta Orsi. They've done a lot of work, but I remember specifically that they were brought on to do the Transformers movies and Star Trek, the reboot of the Star Trek movies philip iscove len weissman and of course it's based on characters in the legend of sleepy hollow by washington irving one of my favorites at halloween time in elementary school every time before early dismissal for halloween they bring us in and show us the cartoon i it's one of those images burned in my brain of that flaming jack-o-lantern coming through the covered bridge and just a cool eerie short story starred tom misson nicole bahari orlando jones katya winter lindy greenwood and then later nikki reed and shannon sossaman were added as recurring and there were a lot of guest arcs coming in and out it was also produced by kurtzman and orsi Wiseman, Heather Kadin, Mark Goffman, Ken Olin, Clifton Campbell, Albert Kim, Damian Kindler for Mark Goffman Productions, Sketch Films, KO Paper Products, and 20th Century Fox. It began in September of 2013. As I mentioned, it was it's based on the characters from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, but how it starts is Gabad Crane shows up in present-day Sleepy Hollow, New York. He is taken to the hospital, and he's taken to the jail, and people are like, is there a reenactment going on? Dude, why are you in these clothes? Why are you talking like that? He starts to realize, I must have time-traveled. So what happened is, he shoots at the Headless Horseman the same time the Headless Horseman shoots at him, and that causes him to time-travel. Nicole Bahari plays Abby Mills, and she is a sheriff's lieutenant, but later on she's an FBI agent. So there's some little mishmash of actually what, like how that happens. Crane was a double agent for George Washington. So he was a British gentleman, and he was landed, and he was considered loyal to the crown, but he actually was a spy for George Washington. He has a copy of George Washington's Bible, and there are ciphers in there that lead them to clues that tell them there's demons locked up in the area by some curse or some spell. They're being kept contained, but they're going to break free soon, and only Abby and Ichabod can be the ones to stop that from happening. That's the overarching story. 
And it is a procedural. Every episode has A, B, and C stories. It's got the overarching story. It's got the thread of whatever the mystery is they're trying to solve that episode. And then it's got the whatever demon lore is going on that they're trying to figure out in that episode. Stop demons from being unleashed on Sleepy Hollow. And it gets into kind of pretty nerdy territory with the ciphers and the potions and the lotions and the gemstones and the and the labyrinths underneath the city and they're carved during the revolutionary war by the illuminati and the all that stuff the relationship between ichabod and abby is very good very fizzy very funny and the special effects and some of those stories are genuinely scary they got the real deal effects people on the on the show. So season one, great. It was 13 episodes and got a lot of buzz. But there was a shakeup in the writers and also in the showrunner and also in the producers. And this is where I'll get a little bit into the backstage stuff. Maureen Ryan, Vanity Fair writer, wrote a book last year you may be familiar with called Burn It Down, and it was an expose of some of the shenanigans going on on some popular shows. Like we talked about earlier, these scripted shows have different standards and operations than reality shows, than news programs or whatever. But one thing we can all agree on now, at least I hope, is that it's a workplace. Because it's a creative workplace, that doesn't excuse bad behavior. So one of the chapters in Maureen Ryan's book was about what was going on behind the scenes at Sleepy Hollow. Oh, really? <laughs> they were on all the magazine covers. They, people were obsessed with this great notion, breakout series and everything. Among many things that were alleged is that co-stars on the show that got very famous very fast they weren't given any support in that or any guidance really about how to handle that the other thing was there was some racial stuff going on the series started with people of color on the writing and producing staff they were all replaced by season three and there were these microaggressions about nicole bahari's hair her natural hair and that came from the studio level and then apparently i don't know if she and her co-star never got along but maybe the friction of all of those things started to have a strain on their relationships the thing that was fun about the show which was their banter and their crackliness they started separating them their storylines abby be over here investigating this and ichabod would be over here investigating that so that part went away nicole bahari when she started to do press after she left the show said that she and tom misson were sick at around the same time they gave him time off and let him go home to england to recuperate and they made her stay and complete filming she ended up having to be hospitalized and I'm just going to read Maureen Ryan's quote about that. When speaking to The Hollywood Reporter, Ryan said, quote, if there's a thing that causes me to want to burn things down, it's when people leave the industry or are essentially forced out of the industry or forced into essentially career hiatuses, not due to a pattern of serious misconduct or serious unprofessionalism or serious transgressions, but because they feared for their mental health, their physical well-being, 
their safety, and their overall quality of life was terrible. So she's sick. She's stressed. The people who had her back have been forced out of the show. People are telling other people who come onto the show to not talk to her because she's quote unquote crazy. Rightfully, she decides she's going to leave. Season three, they keep Abby and Ichabod apart from each other for most of the season. And then the end of the season, they kill off Abby. And they make it that she is like sacrificing herself in order to keep more of a shit show from happening in Sleepy Hollow. Like I said, the had a very effective, eerie ambiance. The co-stars had a great cracking chemistry. The procedural element can get dull, but because the effects were so good, it was fun. The more bizarre it got, the more fun it was. So this show had a lot going for it, and it's not due to the lack of any talent. It's just due to when they had a hit on their hands and doing everything wrong. When thinking about how to rewrite this, and maybe this is a little bit of sour grapes on my part, but if it had to come to one of them being killed off, they should have killed off the guy who came from the 1700s. It didn't make any sense to have Abby be the one be killed off. They should have had some kind of resolution to the whatever misfire that caused him to be transported forward in time. And he could have gone back to the revolution with what he knew from the future, be reunited with his wife and his kid, be a hero in the Revolutionary War, and then Abby could pick up where they left off and fight demons or whatever. That, could, that show could have gone for a long, long time. And on many levels, it was a shame. But because perhaps with people who had a better handle on running a show and guiding a show that becomes an unexpected hit into its next season, it could have avoided some of those really terrible things that allegedly took place behind the scenes to crash into the mountain. Nicole Bahari has a role in the morning show in the most recent season where she plays an anchor who deals with racial bullshit and gender pay issues and it all comes from like the the corporate level but like she's literally dealing with these storylines that she dealt with in in real life and that quote from maureen ryan if you go back and look at when she left the show there was a period of time where she was not getting much work she has not given that many interviews about what happened but she did say like nobody wanted to work with me because they started this I don't even want to say it's a smear campaign, but when you're on this show, they're talking to the people on the next set, news travels, and they're saying she's difficult to work with. Don't talk to her. Don't anything you need to tell her run by me. And anyway, again, all these things are alleged in the book. We weren't there. I think that's actually good that they gave her that role to maybe she could work some of that out. But Sorry, it makes me wonder if that role was created for her. But I do think seeing that she she was nominated for like awards for the morning show, Mm -hmm. like Golden Globes and stuff. And it very well deserved. She's excellent. Like imitating art, imitating life. Do better, dudes. Just do better. Just do better. Again, that was 2013, which wasn't that long ago, but in terms of Me Too and dragging some of the sickness out into the sunlight seems like a very long time ago. Hopefully those don't take it seriously when people make a complaint. Because they didn't for so long. That's the shame of it, because people had basically be guinea pigs to find justice stuff, which is bullshit. 
I know Apple doesn't need my help to spread the word on any of their products. <laughs> I feel like I keep recommending Apple shows and I might just be in an Apple loop. <laughs> but this one does apply to our topic today. Slow Horses just came back for third season. It is based on the Slaw House novel by Mick Heron. And it is written by Will Smith, not that Will Smith, Morwenna Bank, Mark Denton, and Johnny Stockwood. Executive producers are Ian Canning, Hakan Kuseta, Jamie Lawrenson, Graham Yost. Oh. Did old Golden Graham. For Seesaw Films, Live Studio Pictures, Sony Pictures Television, of course, Apple TV, starring Gary Oldman. Kristen Scott Thomas, Saskia Reeves, Jack Loden. They have Olivia Cook as the star, but she's really only in one. Christopher Chong, Sophie Okonedo, and Freddie Fox. And the seasons go by super fast. And Apple was very smart. They cast Gary Oldman as this leathery, crotchety misanthrope who's abusive to all of the buys in his stable. They're called slow horses because their agent screwing something up. <laughs> screwing up an op, screwing up some, something important along the way. So they're referred to as slow horses. But they show under his tutelage, such as it is, that they're capable agents. Uh, very much like they have Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas Talking about the good old days of spycraft and chewing up the scenery, having this very, very layered subtext in all of their conversation. And they just let the young go and do the actual. It has been at the top of my list ever since you recommended it, but I'm in this, like, this genre specifically. I want to go out. Oh. So the nice thing about it is a quick one and they're resolved quickly. Your recommendation. Okay, so I recently watched a show I liked called Hannah on Amazon Prime. This show ran from 2019 to 2021, and it was created by David Farr and is based on the 2011 film, also called Hannah, which was written by David Farr and Seth Lockhead. It stars Esme Creed Miles, Muriel Enos, Joel Kinnaman, Noah Taylor, Dermot Mulroney, and Ray Liotta in one of his final roles. Esme Creed Miles plays Hannah, a teenage girl living with her father, Eric, in a remote forest somewhere deep in Poland. They don't have any other family or friends. They live very simply off the land, killing and catching their food. And he's clearly teaching her survival skills. He's very protective of her, and he won't let her venture very far from home. And that's because they are in hiding. Hannah was born at a CIA-run lab, which was taking babies and enhancing their DNA to create super soldiers. And Eric, her father, was a recruiter for this program, which had the codename Utrax. And he was in charge of finding pregnant women who were really vulnerable, that were single and poor. 
and didn't have any family. And he uh, was tasked with convincing them that they'd be taken care of by Utrax, but really Utrax just stole their babies. So Eric recruits Hannah's mother, Johanna, when she's pregnant, but he falls in love with her. And once Hannah is born, he helps them escape. But in the process, they are chased by Marissa, and she's the head agent of Utrax, and she's played by Muriel Enos. And Johanna's killed in a car crash as they flee, and Eric saves Hannah. And they live in hiding for 15 years until Hannah becomes curious and is discovered. And the Utrax program was eventually shut down, but Marissa has been looking for them this whole time. She's been obsessed. And the show follows Eric and Hannah as they are on the run again and as they get separated and as they try to find each other. And Marissa, as she chases them. It's a really exciting cat and mouse show. It's also really interesting to watch this teenager who has no concept of the outside world try to fit in and learn how to be a regular kid while also protecting herself and like leaving a trail of dead bad guys behind her. Uh, I don't want to say too much more, but it's a really good show to check out. That sounds really good. And also, like, the cast sounds good. Great cast. Yeah, very good. This particular episode involved a lot of violent situations, and I wanted to address the casualness that we so often view gun violence in our entertainment by featuring a charity that's all about gun violence prevention. It's called March for Our Lives, and it is the youth-led organization that was founded by the survivors of the Parkland, Florida school shooting in 2018. They're focused on mobilizing and giving a voice to young advocates and activists, and they've registered hundreds of thousands of new voters. And their efforts have actually led to real legislation and federal and state policy changes. One thing they do that I love is around election time, they provide scorecards for candidates so voters know where these politicians stand, like whether they're accepting campaign funds from gun lobby or if they oppose or support federal gun purchasing loopholes, et cetera, et cetera. So voters can really make informed decisions at election time. Marchforourlives.com to check them out and to support a really engaged youth movement that is hell-bent on building a safer and better future because the adults in the room have clearly not, not done the job. That they should have prepared. What's funny? I wrote because the adults have clearly shit the bed on this one. I I really like the idea of focusing on on the youth led. Yeah, enough lately because if if this generation is not going to save things, they're at least putting things in motion in a way that that we couldn't and we didn't. And unfortunately, it's because they've dealt with a lot of stuff really directly. They were just like, "This fucking sucks." Enough. Right. They're out there and they're mobilizing and they're they're making stuff happen. So I I really focusing on on those groups because they give me some hope. Amen. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Share your endings with us at retconnection.com or on Instagram at retconnection.